Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Our text this morning comes from Revelation chapter 20. We are continuing in a series called End in Mind, Peace of Mind. This series is taking us through the book of Revelation, and um, we have not done the entire book. We did the first about four or five chapters of the book in uh, the lead up to Advent. Then we took a break. Now we're back in, but we're not jumping in where we left off. We're moving ahead into Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to read for us a handful of verses here in a moment, but before I do, I want to set the stage because it's been a while since we've been in the book of Revelation. Revelation is really a, a snapshot of what the church will endure through the ages. It's the primary focus of the book of Revelation. It's not a book that is designed to give us a, a, a big sweeping view of what some people call end times, but rather it's a, it's a pulling back of the veil of what is happening in spiritual realities unseen by human eyes, but perceived by the Spirit. We are able to see what is happening in the world with our spiritual eyes when our physical eyes can't see it. There is a spiritual thing happening in the midst of our very physical reality. Christians are not materialists. We believe that there is a spiritual realm populated by things like angels and demons. We believe in a real devil. We'll talk about him today. But we're also not strictly spiritualists either. We believe in the physical world and that the physical world has created good. While the physical world has been corrupted by sin, physicality, being physical and material, isn't a bad thing. God has created all things, both physical and spiritual, and has bound them together so that they are inseparable from one another. Our faith requires a different understanding of reality than what many of our neighbors and friends may hold to. Many of our neighbors and friends would hold to a strict materialism. Others would hold to a strict spiritualism or an undefined mixture of the two. The Scriptures present for us a vision of reality as it is both physical and spiritual, and revelation is the pulling back of that veil so that we can see them interacting with one another. The vast majority of the book of Revelation is not about the final day. It is instead about the spiritual warfare taking place behind the scenes during the entire existence of the church. But the section we look at today does finally take us to the last day. It is the Bible's way of telling us the end of the story before we get there. Um, My daughter does this, and I have sympathy for her because I used to do this when I was a kid as well. When she gets a book or when she starts a new TV series, the TV series one for me is a little weirder, but all right. 
She'll read the last couple pages or she'll watch the last episode before she watches the rest of it or reads the rest of the book. Drives me crazy, but I used to do the same thing and I would have a mystery book or something. I would never be able to resist the urge of going to the end and saying, all right, is it worth it? Is this book or is this TV show worth it? In fact, it's gotten to the point now, thanks to On Demand, that when everybody's raving about a new TV show, I normally won't watch it while it's happening because I have been burned one too many times. Giving myself to a TV show and the series finale is absolute trash. Like, Why did I spend all these hours watching this show? Is it worth it? Is it worth the time and energy I'm about to give to this? Well, thankfully, God is more like my daughter than me. I want to see it from beginning to end. And God says, well, let me tell you the end as well. Because I want you to know if this is worth it. Everything we're about to go through as Christians and as the church from the first century on, is it worth it? Is it worth the pain? Is it worth the suffering? The Christian gospel is not a gospel that says, hey, when you come to Christ, you get to live a perfectly comfortable, carefree life. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ includes suffering at its center point, the cross. And we are told that we must go through the cross to get to resurrection. The good news is, and what we begin to see in these final chapters of Revelation, what we're going to spend these last few weeks in the book of Revelation looking at, is the answer to the question, is it worth it? That after all the suffering and all the pain, there is resurrection. And the Bible's resounding answer to the question, is it worth it, is yes. It's worth it. We may not get to skip suffering. We may not get to have comfortable, carefree lives. But it is worth it. The main message of Revelation is that our reality is both physical and spiritual, that there is a spiritual war that lies underneath the suffering of the church, but it's a book of blessing, a book of encouragement to say, keep Pressing on a Christian, it's worth it. That's the message of Revelation. Now, throughout this book, there are these recurring themes. Wednesday nights, what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Revelation um, in a lot slower and a lot more detailed way. So Pastor Tim and I have been teaching through the book in Montgomery on Wednesday nights, and we have not skipped a verse. We're doing the whole thing. And there are some themes that recur throughout the book of Revelation. I can't do them all for you, but there are a couple of them that I really want to emphasize here today. First, the book of Revelation presents a false trinity, a counterfeit trinity that is a, a mirror of the true trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This false trinity shows up throughout the book of Revelation to cause havoc and wage war on the church. Revelation 12 is a high point in this story. We're going to look at that in a little while. And the second theme that runs through that I want to highlight today of the many 
It's a false trinity, which is a warning for the saints. Another theme is that God will judge evil. He will judge evil. That all of the things that we feel in our own lives and in the world that are unjust, sinful, wicked, wrong, there's an answer to that. That God does not just let that evaporate into the ether with no response. That he is a good and holy and loving God who hates sin and hates wickedness because of the way that it defames his holiness and denigrates his creation. So the second theme is that God judges evil and that is to be an encouragement for the saints. So all of that in the background, let's turn to our few verses today. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray together. Father, these are hard words. And yet this is your word that is profitable for us, for teaching and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So, Lord, we submit ourselves to your word. We ask that your spirit would speak through your word in a way that we can understand. And we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, giving us ears that are able to hear and a willingness to obey what you show us today. Create in us a response. We love you. We thank you for your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Using this text, I want to look at four realities that impact our lives today. I was speaking with a friend of mine about this word, eschatology, this doctrine of ultimate things, final things. And I was sharing with her that this word, eschatology, when it's relegated to the end, we can often say, oh, well, we just need to know that Jesus is going to come back one day, and it doesn't really matter what happens. But what eschatology is designed to do is not to give us like a New York Times play-by-play of the final days, 
It's not supposed to frighten us or scare us. It's supposed to encourage us in our today discipleship. The book of Revelation is not just a, a, a peering into the distant future, but it is a lesson that helps us grow as disciples today. It's incredibly practical and incredibly encouraging. But sometimes we are encouraged by the more difficult things. It's a way of spurring us on. It's a way of helping us see things as they are that we might live in a way that glorifies Christ. So I want to look at the way things are, four realities. I'm calling them realities because they are four things that the world would maybe tell you are fables or myths, things that aren't real. They relegate them to maybe the, the pantheon of Greece or Rome. Say, so this is just another fairy tale or fable to scare children. Or this is just another folklore that Christians made up as a part of their mythos. So I'm calling them realities on purpose. Because as Christians, we do not believe that these are made-up fairy tales. We believe that this is a real look at real things that really happen. Which means we believe there is a real devil. Now, we do not believe the devil is running around in a red suit and a pitchfork. We do not believe the devil is the caricature that Hollywood has made him into or the caricature that evangelicals have often made him into. We have turned him into either way too weak or way too powerful of a, be of a being. Nonetheless, he is real. It was a French poet in the 19th century who said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. One of the ways we do that is we obscure who he really is, according to the Scriptures, by making him way too weak and silly and costumey, or way too powerful and scary and horror film-like. Who is Satan, the devil, as he is described in Scripture? The first reality that impacts our life today, there is a devil. Satan does exist. He is real. But who is he? Well, we can trace his development throughout the Scriptures. The first time we encounter him is in the Garden of Eden. We know this is him because of Revelation 12. And Revelation 12 gives us the clearest picture of who the devil is. He is in the Garden. He is a serpent in the garden. We see in Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was thrown down. We'll look at that in a moment. That ancient serpent. So when God creates heaven and the earth, he creates all things, including all creatures, and he builds a garden right in the middle of it all. And into the garden, he breathes life into the first man and the first woman. But they're not there alone. They're there um, communing with God, but also with the creatures that are around them. And we find out way at the end of the Bible that the serpent that shows up in Genesis 3 is not some random serpent, but is actually Satan himself, the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation calls him. So there he is, and he is the one who deceives Eve, he is the one that tempts Adam and Eve into uh, sinning against God by eating of the fruit, and sin enters into the world. 
The existence of sin and brokenness in the world is because of this, this agreement between humanity and the devil to rebel against God. God is not the author of sin. Human beings and Satan working together are the author of sin. It's through the sin of one man that sin entered into the world, that one man being the first man. So there he is in Genesis 3, the devil, right away. But then in the Old Testament, it gets a bit murky as to where this devil is. In Job, he's in the heavenly courts. Other times, he's talked about as having this great celestial power. He's almost too big to understand. So he's only mentioned here or there in the Old Testament. But then, Jesus enters into the world, that's Christmas, lives a perfect life, is tempted by the devil during that ministry. Satan himself comes and tempts Jesus in the wilderness. This is the next time we really see him at work. We don't get a whole lot of him in the Old Testament. But Jesus enters into the world. The Son of God is born. There's the devil waiting to greet him. Jesus resists him, resists the temptation, and the devil flees from him. Then Revelation chapter 12 gives us a picture of what happens at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something happens to Satan there that changes everything. So I want to read this section, Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. When did this happen? That's the question. When did this happen? Well, the Bible actually tells us when it happened. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The casting out of Satan from heaven does not happen at the beginning. It happens when Christ is there. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him, look, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This dragon has been thrown down through the blood of Jesus Christ. The cross, his death and subsequent resurrection, is the defeat of Satan in heaven, and he falls. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And so now, from the time of the resurrection of Christ until the final day, Satan is unleashed to do harm against the people of God. And the picture that we're given is of a woman who gives birth to a child. The dragon wants to destroy the child, to kill the child. There's Christmas in a pretty graphic way. The dragon wants to destroy the child, but he's 
rescued, and the woman flees into the wilderness, and the devil is there. The dragon became furious with the woman, verse 17, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What is the devil doing? He is making war against the church and against all of those who would cling to the testimony of Christ. That warfare has been true from the resurrection until what Revelation 20 describes as the final day. Because here's Satan, this dragon, again. When the thousand years are ended, that's the, this, that means we're into the final day now. We're into the final day. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. I have the passage up here for you as well. We have this mentioning of Gog and Magog. Those are ancient nations. And they, they come to mean, by this point, the totality of human wickedness and rebellion against God. Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So here we're given a picture of Satan's final desire to destroy the people of God. He's at the city. The city of Jerusalem is, at this point, where the people of God are. They marched around over the, up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Here we have the final defeat of Satan, not because the church fought back, not because we took up arms to protect ourselves, but fire comes from heaven to consume them. God protects his church. God does it. He is the great warrior. We are huddled in the camp waiting for our salvation. You see, this is about God's saving work. And we as Christians ought to be very careful that we do not buy into any ideology that would tell us it is our job to fight against the world. It is not. Our job is not to war with the world. Our job is to love the world. Jesus was very clear about this. Love your neighbors as yourself. Love even your enemies. Yes, acknowledge that they are enemies, but love them. Don't hate them. Don't war against them. This is not who we are. We are a people who await the salvation that comes from heaven. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who would deceive them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet, those are two of the other people of this false trinity that's described in the book of Revelation. Thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We'll look at the reality of hell in a moment. But I want to get ahead now to the great white throne judgment that appears right after in the book of Revelation. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. That is a, a poetic, apocalyptic way of describing the power and majesty and might of this one who sits on the throne. That 
Even earth and sky want to get away. He's so powerful. This is the one who sits on the throne. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. A quick pause. Great and small. Our definitions of greatness and smallness matter not at the throne of God. We are all equal at the throne of God. We are all to stand before him. We are all to see this power, this majesty. Whether the world is called as great or whether the world has said you're too small to even worry about, we all stand as equals before the throne. And here's what happens at the throne. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, not the book of life, but the other books first opened, according to what they had done. Here we have judgment. And judgment is one of those things that is difficult for us. It's hard for us to fathom a God who would judge people. It's a judgment according to what they had done. So your works are what are judged here. Judgment is the second reality that we want to have in mind that helps us live our everyday life. First, it's the reality of the devil, but there's also a reality of judgment. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. Christ wants us to be completely convinced that there is going to be a day of judgment as a deterrent to sin for everyone and as an added consolation for the godly in their suffering. He has also made sure that no one knows when that day will be so we may never rest secure in our worldly surroundings. But not knowing what hour the Lord will come, we must always be alert and may always be ready to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Look at why he reveals judgment to us. It is first as a deterrent to sin for everyone. There is an ethical way to live. Christians believe in right and wrong. That there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. We believe in the doctrine of sin. And so because of this, the reality of judgment at the end helps us as a deterrent to stay away from sin. Sin, as attractive and fun as it may be, is actually bad for us. It's destructive. It destroys everyone that it touches. And so we are told of judgment as a deterrent to sin, but also as an added consolation for the godly in their suffering. It responds, yes, to the sins that we commit, but also it speaks a word of comfort and consolation to those of us who have been sinned against by others. There is a bit of a reckoning that is taking place in the church of Jesus Christ right now about the way that sin has been allowed to persist in evangelical churches. And there are many who have been hurt in the church by people who would say they are followers of Jesus Christ. Perhaps even they are. But they have been sinned against. And it cuts deep. 
It cuts deep when you're sinned against by a brother or sister in Christ. There are those who've been sinned against profoundly, even by people in their own families. And when you are suffering this way, when you've been sinned against, you can feel completely alone. You can feel like nobody sees you, nobody hears you. And what this message of God's judgment tells us is God sees you. God hears you. He hears your cry. This is what he told Cain after he'd killed Abel. The blood of your brother cries out to me. I see the injustice. I see the sin. I see the pain you're enduring at the hands of others. I see it, and I don't leave it alone. I respond. There is judgment. There is judgment. That reality of judgment helps us to, yes, flee from temptation, resist sin. And it also is there to console us as we feel the pain of being sinned against. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This is just Revelation's way of saying there is nobody who's ever lived who doesn't go through this. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The doctrine of hell is an unpopular one, but this is our third reality. Hell is real. It is clearly taught in the Scriptures. Larger Catechism says, what are the punishments for sin in the next world? Here's the answer. The punishments for sin in the next world include everlasting separation from the comforting presence of God and the horrible torment of soul and body in hellfire without interposition forever. This is the just response of God against sin. An eternal God responds to our sins with eternal punishment. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I have the privilege of doing a lot of missions work. I get to go to different parts of the world. I get to talk to people who are doing the work on the ground. This reality may not be the only thing that empowers them to do their work, but it is certainly, certainly in the top five. If you die and your name is not written in the book of life, you go to hell. That is the reality of the situation. And this is not us saying, oh, well, you know, Christians are so much better than the rest of the world. No, not at all. In fact, we believe to our core that if it were not for the grace of Jesus Christ, we would all be headed in that direction. Our salvation is not of us. It is God because of his love and his mercy. He is the one who saves. And the way he saves is through the presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans puts it this way. This is Paul speaking. Romans chapter 9. 
he talks of the importance of people going out and sharing the good news. Excuse me, it's chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Skip down. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We do missions because we believe the gospel is true. It is an outflow of our worship of a God who is merciful and just, of a God who saves his people from their sins. And the way he has ordained salvation to come about is by grace through faith. We must believe. Not believe as we may believe in some historic fact back in the day, but believe the way we believe in gravity so we don't walk off buildings because we believe gravity exists. We don't tie ourselves down to things, hope and fear that we're going to float off into the sky because we believe gravity exists. The entirety of our life is built on the truth that gravity exists. We believe it, and so we live that way. We believe. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are saved, which means we live that way. But how will people believe if they've never heard? We have reframed who we are as a church. Goodwill Church is one church in five locations, really. Two in Montgomery, one in Port Jervis, one in New Paltz, one here. We used to call them branches, but we've changed that up a little bit to get us back to the core of why we did this in the first place. Why are we planting branches? And it's because of the Great Commission. This is why we call ourselves mission churches. In fact, if you go back into the Presbyterian Book of Order and all that stuff, you find mission churches. That's what we plant. We plant mission churches. We are a mission church. What is the mission? To proclaim the gospel. Because of this truth, there is hell for all who do not believe. Which means that if you're a part of this church, the commission that God puts on you is to preach the word. Not because you have all the answers, not because you're eloquent, but because you know the saving work of Jesus Christ in your life. And you know the reality that awaits all of those who die apart from him. And my prayer is that that burden would not be a burden of, oh, I have to save people. We can't. It's the Spirit at work. But that it would be a burden to say, I must share the gospel. I must share the good news of salvation. Here's a very simple way to do that. It's called the three circles. We're introducing this, uh, well, we've done the introduction here at Goodwill Church. This is just a tool. It's a tool to help us share the gospel. It's all that it is, but it is a helpful one. We had an evangelism training here a couple months ago. We went through this 
We're going to have another evangelism, evangelism training, Lord willing, beginning of March. But here's the three circles. We begin with God's design, God's perfect world, what he built his creation, a good, sinless world that was on trajectory to glory. And then sin enters the world, our rebellion against God, and everything breaks. Everything that God had built, we shattered in one fell swoop. This is why judgment comes. Because it must be answered for. All of the chaos, all of the sin, all of the brokenness. You watch the news and you say, this is too big. Who's going to stop this? Are they really going to get away with that? No. For one day there will be judgment. That's part of this gospel message. The gospel is that the world is broken, that the kingdoms of this world cannot bring an answer, and so God sent his son to be our king. That there is a new way of living. That there is a new way of being. It's life in the kingdom. And how do we live in the kingdom? How can we enter in? He made a way. He made a way into that kingdom by dying for our sins, the thing that separated us from God, by rising again to give us life so that all who live in Christ may enter into the kingdom, yes, now, and, and in its fullness on the final day. So we get to look at for the next couple of weeks what it is when the kingdom comes in its fullness. That's the gospel. There is a different way of being. It's called being alive. No longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but alive in Christ. A new creation, a new humanity being constituted by God himself in Christ. That's the gospel. And so we repent and we believe. That's how we enter into this kingdom. The good news is that Jesus took on flesh, dwelt among us, died for our sins, and rose again. But how how does that mean anything to me? We repent of our sins. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He takes what Christ did on the cross and he applies it to you. So that you are no longer seen as guilty in the eyes of God, but you are justified. More than that, the Holy Spirit so unites us to Christ that we are adopted into his family as daughters and sons, citizens of the kingdom of God, worshiping before Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then we live out, we believe, therefore, we live as if it is true. We live out a life of bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is what we pray every week. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get to be a part of that. We get to work together for mercy and for justice. We get to work together to love our neighbors and even love our enemies. In the prayers that they would hear this good gospel news and come to salvation themselves. These three circles, it's a very simple little tool but it can be used anywhere. Train, airplane, a diner. Maybe with a friend who would never step your foot into a church. 
So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is just a simple tool to use, the three circles. But I want to get back to this verse because I'm not convinced that everybody who is here is a follower of Jesus. And so I want to give you the fourth reality. It's the reality of mercy. Look at what it says. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, what does that imply? That if your name was found written, this is not for you. You don't have to endure this. You see, when we come to Christ and we confess our sins, when we repent and believe, we are shown mercy. Our name written in the book of life, never to be blotted out, Revelation says elsewhere. Never to be blotted out. Made alive, redeemed, a new creation. A recipient of mercy. The catechism again. Does God leave the whole human race to die in sin and misery? The answer. God does not leave the whole human race to die in sin and misery that resulted from breaking the first covenant ordinarily called the covenant of works. Merely from his love and mercy, God delivers his elect, that's all who believe in him, from sin and misery and brings them into salvation by means of the second covenant ordinarily called the covenant of grace. Merely from his love and mercy. He sees you and he loves you and he delights to show mercy to his children. And he delivers you from sin, from misery, even this eternal misery, he brings you into salvation. If only you would believe. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit to be able to put faith in Christ. The good news is this. If you hear this message, and if something's tugging on you and you're saying, oh man, I've done the church thing, I've gone to church, I've even served and been involved, but I've never really repented of my sin, that I can't say that I do believe because I might come to church, but then I, I don't live as a Christian. I don't live that way. I just say the right things at the right times. Then hear me. There is a way of salvation from this hell, from this Satan, from this judgment. It's through the mercy of Christ. He calls you to repent. He calls you to believe. He calls you because he loves you. He calls you because he sees you in your sin, and he says it doesn't have to define you. He sees the way the people have sinned against him. He says it doesn't have to define you. Come to me, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus says to us. And so we start 2023 with a reality check. Is my reality the same reality as the Bible's reality? If I bought into the myths of modernity or post-modernity or post-post-modernity, is my reality primarily shaped by Scripture, even the realities of Satan and judgment and hell? Is my reality primarily shaped by Scripture or by culture or society or politics? 
Have I discounted the reality of Satan, hell, and judgment because it's uncomfortable? Have I embraced a more palatable unreality in its place? We have an opportunity this January 1st to recommit ourselves to the biblical reality that we might grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. Our reality is one that is both physical and spiritual together. We believe in spiritual warfare. We believe in spiritual presence of Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us and through us. It is basically life in the intersection of a Venn diagram, that overlapping middle part when you have two circles and you overlap them. That middle part, that's where we live in between the kingdoms that are and the kingdom that is to come. Call it the already and the not yet. This life in the kingdom that we live as followers of Jesus, of another place, the epicenter of that is the sacrament. When we gather together for the Lord's Supper, we believe that Jesus is spiritually present with us in and through the elements, in a way different than any other time of the week. This is why we do it every week. Because this is the epicenter of our spiritual life together. When God breathed into Adam, that first person, Genesis tells us he became a living soul. Body-soul composite. You can't separate the two. The physical and the spiritual go together. And the high point of that was Christ, God in the flesh. And when we participate in this sacrament, we eat God's body broken for us, his flesh. We drink his blood poured out for us, that saving work. No, the elements don't change. It's still bread and it's still juice in place of wine. But spiritually, he is here with us. Because this is how we live now as Christians, in this new reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we also thank you for this sacrament, the epicenter of this life that we live together. We thank you for this time where you dwell with us again, but in a spiritual way. The bread, your body. The juice, your blood. And Lord, while it's not fun necessarily to begin the year talking about Satan and hell and judgment, Lord, the time is short. And we can't mess around with unrealities anymore. Help us, help us to embrace the reality of the Scriptures. Help us to believe that there is a better way, that there is a way of salvation, of mercy, and of grace, and of love that is found only in Jesus Christ. We come to this table, Father, because you commune with us here in a different, unique way than anywhere else in our lives. Jesus, you spiritually commune with your people through this sacrament. 
So we come before this understanding what's happening with reverence, and yet with joy, that we, your saved people, can participate in you, and that we can be your people, vessels of love and mercy and grace in a world that desperately needs it. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.